0: Good morning, and uh, welcome to our uh, second set of presentations today. My name is David Wilcove. I am with the Woodrow Wilson School and the Program in Science, Technology, and Environmental Policy. It is my pleasure to moderate this session entitled Concerns for Oceans, Climate, and Animal Welfare. Before I introduce our panelists, I have been asked to tell you that the coffee being served today is fair trade and organic coffee. So if you have been holding back for fear of committing an environmental or ethical uh, flaw, please go ahead and help yourself. As I said, our session today is entitled Concerns for Oceans, Climate and Animal Welfare. Each of our three panelists will speak for approximately 20 minutes. They will judge that they're coming to the end of their time as I get increasingly fidgety. And then we will uh, take questions from the audience until 12.30 when uh, we will break uh, for lunch. It's my pleasure to introduce the first panelist in this session, Dr. Rebecca Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg is a senior scientist at Environmental Defense, where she has focused her work on promoting sustainable harvest fisheries, marine fisheries, as well as promotion of which fish species are, in fact, safe to eat. She focuses on scientific and policy issues concerning aquaculture as well, and she is a member of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Working Group to develop organic standards for the growing aquaculture industry. She also serves on the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Advisory Board and the Marine Aquaculture Task Force. I might also add, with no small amount of pride, that she is an alumna from the class of 1980 here at Princeton. Rebecca Gold.
1: Thank you very much, uh, David. It's, um, can you hear me? It's, um, it's wonderful to be here. And um, I thought I'd be- begin my presentation not with a title slide, but rather with a picture of a fish dinner. And um, the reasons of this are multiple. Not only am I going to focus my presentation today on fish, but this is my inspiration for getting involved. When I came to environmental defense, I, I worked on agricultural issues. Um, But about a decade ago, as environmental defense was starting an oceans program with my involvement, I became aware that when I frequently went out to eat or shared meals with ecologically conscious colleagues and friends, um, that they would make good choices about the meat they eat or the the produce they bought. But when it came to fish, okay, when it came to fish, they would... um, select anything as an ecologically acceptable choice and I knew that just wasn't true. Well, um, in the years since there's been increasing attention in the the public and the media to problems with fisheries, certainly the collapse of the cod fishery in New England and um, Atlantic Canada brought a lot of attention to the the issues in the late 1990s and uh, this attention has continued. Uh, Certainly when cartoonists start writing about a problem you know it's beginning to become mainstream um, well what really is the, the status of the oceans well if you look at united nations food and agriculture organization statistics which are the available global statistics on fisheries they show essentially that wild fish catches have, have plateaued around the world um... since about the nineteen mid-1980s global fish catch has hovered at about ninety to ninety three million metric tons a year it goes up and down with various factors but Um, we don't see dramatic increases or or declines. But that really doesn't tell the whole story. Those statistics are are in many ways misleading. And let me explain why. Um, And I'm gonna start doing this by showing you a map of the North Atlantic. And this is a map made by um, fishery scientists at the University of British Columbia and it shows the so-called biomass, the the, the weight, essentially, of what they call table fish. Predatory fish like haddock and cod that people really like to eat at the turn of the century. And the red areas are the areas that have very high biomass, down through the the light blue areas which have virtually none. So you can see there were were a fair amount of fish, uh, big fish, at the turn of the century for humans to consume. Well, this is the same map Um, made by the same individuals for about the year 2000. And you can see just the extraordinary decline in um, fish, table fish biomass, the fish we like to eat. And there's nothing really unique about this set of maps. Geographically, I could have shown you a a similar set of maps uh, for Asia, which would show the exact same pattern. It's going on all around the world. And what's really happening is something called fishing down the food chain, uh, a term that was coined by the same group of scientists at... uh, University of British Columbia, and what's happened is that um, whoops, that's the the um, the pristine oceans are have large numbers of big fish like tuna that people love to eat, and um, today we're probably somewhere like here where we fished out a lot of these big fish. There's some still left, but a lot of our fisheries left are lower on the food chain, smaller fish, and we're catching more of them, and that's why we can maintain fish catches. Um, at a global level when actually there's still dramatic declines or even collapses in many fisheries. And if we keep at it in the way we're going, eventually we're going to be down here where all the fish left are small fish in the ocean and uh, invertebrates, things like jellyfish, which are just booming given the the drastic changes in marine ecosystems we've seen. Well, why are are we seeing these declines in, in the fish that people like to eat most? Well, one reason is, of course, overfishing, catching more fish than the oceans can replenish. And there are a number of reasons for overfishing. Um, One of them is very simple. It's it's technology. At the turn of the century, fishing boats were largely powered by sails. Uh, After World War II, they became much bigger, powered by diesel engines. And um, that, coupled with sonar technology that allows fishing boats to Target virtually any aggregation of fish in the oceans has meant a a really hugely increased capacity to catch fish. But overfishing isn't the complete story. There are also a number of ecological damages that are brought about by uh, many types of fishing. Um, To give a couple examples, the the advent of big motorized uh, uh, diesel fishing boats has meant that the boats can pull large, what are called trawls, nets that are pulled over the, the bottom, they catch all the fish in their path, which is efficient, um, but they also do a lot of damage to the sea floor. It's sort of like clear cutting the sea floor. You're catching everything in the path of that net, including things like deep water corals, um, all the structures on the bottom. Um, some people call it clear cutting the oceans. Uh, another collateral damage of fishing is um, from what's called bycatch. A lot of um, fish, are end up being caught and killed other than the species that are targeted. Um, Shrimp fishery worldwide is particularly notorious for bycatch, the picture um, on your right is a, a picture of a typical catch on a shrimp vessel. You can see there's a lot of fish in there and on average something like five pounds of juvenile fish and other marine life are killed for every pound of wild shrimp that's caught worldwide. Well, um, with the problems there are in fisheries, um, fish farming or aquaculture has become an increasingly important source of seafood. Uh, About 43% of all the fish directly consumed by people worldwide are now farmed. That's up from 9% in 1980. So the growth in fish farming around the world has been absolutely spectacular. Um, It's important to note that this is a very diverse activity. There are over 200 aquatic species that are farmed worldwide. They're raised using a variety of production systems, everything from what are called net pens or cages that are put directly in in coastal waters like you see here to ponds, to tanks, and so on. And fish are raised both for sale in domestic markets in developing countries. Um, Aquaculture is incredibly important for food security in in Asia. Um, But also there's been a lot of growth of aquaculture for sale in international markets. And and this growth in aquaculture coupled with the depletion of many of the fisheries in the industrialized countries has led to an enormous increase in fish imports in the United States. We now get 80% of the seafood we eat in this country from abroad. It's an astounding figure. Well, let's look at how um, aquaculture and, and fish consumption has changed. Let's just go back a little over 10 years and look at the top five U.S. seafoods in 1994. You can see canned tuna is the most consumed seafood, followed by shrimp, pollock, which is used to make fish sticks. It's wild-caught fish, salmon, and cod. No, no real surprises there. 2004, a mere decade later, shrimp has moved to number one, salmon is number three, catfish is number five, and I didn't include the sixth fish here, but it's tilapia. Those are all fish that are now predominantly coming from farms. So you can see how our food supply, our seafood supply has been transformed by fish farming. You can also see that we are eating more fish than we used to. Well, um, how do we think about fish farming? And the fact is... Um, it's it's not a simple thing to think about. Fish farming can be both a solution and a problem. If if we're interested in increasing seafood supplies, which is important for many developing countries in particular, farming fish is the only reason to create that increase because our oceans are finite, our supplies of fish are finite, and many stocks are, are in deep trouble. That said, some aquaculture sectors, including some that have really boomed in recent years, are ecologically quite problematic. Uh, To illustrate this, I'd like to talk just very briefly about salmon farming. Um, If you go back very far in time, virtually all salmon came um, from the ocean, from stream beds. And now the majority of them are coming from feedlots. Um, The blue in this chart is uh, the total catch worldwide of wild salmon from 1950 through the early 2000s. And um, the area in purple is um, the production of farm salmon and you can see that it has just skyrocketed again to more than half the global supply of salmon. What are some of the the issues with with salmon farming? Well, uh, like any feedlot when you put a lot of animals in in one place you produce a lot of of wastes and um, salmon farms um, are generally net pens or net cages like these which are in British Columbia And the waste from salmon farms flow directly into coastal waters. And if you have a small number of fish in a well-flushed area, it probably doesn't matter a lot, just like it's okay to have cows, you know, on pasture. But when you start putting um, hundreds of thousands or millions of fish in, in one place, the amounts of nitrogen and phosphorus that go into the water can be quite substantial. Um, a single good-sized salmon farm produces an amount of nitrogen and phosphorus that's roughly equivalent to the amount produced by the untreated sewage from um, tens of thousands of people. Another big issue with salmon farming um, has been uh, the spread of parasites uh, and uh, diseases in particular, um, that, again, back to British Columbia where this is now a very hot issue. Um, uh, Salmon in farms in in B.C. and and elsewhere in the world seem to develop problems with what are called sea lice. You know, you pack a lot of creatures in a a small area and you get disease outbreaks. Um, They're very nasty-looking creatures that live on the um, outside of fish and literally chew the surface of the fish. And there's increasing evidence that um, salmon farms are transferring sea lice from farm salmon to wild juvenile pink and chum salmon, and may be depressing populations of those wild fish, and that's extremely troubling. Finally, um, an issue that um, is, is critical in salmon farming and also in a lot of aquaculture sectors is, is what I term inefficiency. And what I mean by this is that a number of the fish that are raised, particularly for consumption in industrialized countries, are naturally predators. Those are the kind of fish we many of us like to eat. And um, in order to grow these predators, they're fed diets that are high in fish meal and fish oil made from wild-caught fish. So it takes something like three pounds of wild-caught fish to grow a pound of farm salmon. So the upshot is that salmon farming isn't really an alternative to fishing. It's just another way of using marine resources and can actually contribute to to problems with over-exploitation of fisheries. So... Um, Many people call this the aquaculture paradox, that aquaculture is an alternative, but can also um, contribute to the collapse of fisheries around the world. Well, with this background, I thought I'd I'd finish off my talk by um, speaking very briefly about some of the strategies, the environmental community and my organization, Environmental Defense in particular, are pursuing to um, achieve some changes in fishing and fish farming to make it more ecologically sound. And our work involves um, government policies, creating incentives, and um, working in the marketplace. And again, working in the marketplace is really important because of the international nature of the seafood trade. We can't just rely on domestic policy as a tool for influencing fisheries. I want to talk very briefly about some of our work on fisheries. This is um, sort of the cliff notes to an idea called cat shares, and I I hope I can can make them um, comprehensible very briefly. But um, to give you a bit of background, one of the reasons we have problems with overfishing is that current systems of fisheries management actually encourage fishermen to catch all the fish they can. Fishermen act in their economic self-interest. They're not bad people, but they have mortgages to pay and and so on um, and they're often not making a lot of money. And um, the way current fisheries management is done is typically to mandate inefficiencies. For example, that fishermen can only use certain gear to catch fish or only fish at very limited times of year um, so that they don't catch too many fish. And what this means is that when fishermen do get to fish, they want to catch all the fish they possibly can because if they don't, someone else is going to get them. Moreover, it's to their economic advantage to push as hard on the political system as they can to make the limits on fishing as, as loose as possible. Well, we would like to change those incentives. And one way to, to do it is to uh, use something called cat shares in which individual fishermen are assigned a fixed percentage of the, what's called the total allowable catch for a fishery, that's set by government based on various scientific criteria. And these catch shares that fishermen own can be bought and sold and fluctuate in value. They're truly shares. And that means that fishermen have an incentive to maximize the worth of their shares over time. If you let a fishery go down the tubes, the total allowable catch is going to go down and your shares are going to be worth less money. So the idea is to give fishermen an economic incentive to conserve. And these catch share programs have now been extensively used in New Zealand. Um, They're used somewhat in Canada. They're adopted in a couple fisheries in Alaska. And they seem to work pretty well. And and we're trying to expand them to more fisheries in the United States. Um, Also working with incentives. Um, we're actively trying to develop organic standards for farm fish. Um, this is important for a number of reasons. Um, obviously, organic is the gold standard for many consumers. You know, we talked a lot about problems with organic at this conference, but it's still, it's the best label consumers have, have out there in, in the marketplace. And so it's really important to have strong organic standards for farm fish because they'll act as an, potentially as an incentive for better fish farming practices. On the other hand, the converse of that, of course, is if we end up with bad organic standards, they'll undermine a lot of efforts that environmental organizations are making otherwise to encourage better um, production practices because, obviously, organic um, fish would command a premium. And, in fact, we already do have organic fish in the market. There are a number of private certifiers abroad that are certifying Um, farmed fish. Um, I I live in northern New Jersey and I can buy them in my supermarket if I want to. And um, some of these standards have some strength. Some of them are pretty dubious. I won't go into that. But the upshot is that we really need some strong um, U.S. Department of Agriculture organic standards for farm fish. And those are in process. There are a lot of issues that have to be worked through. um, But I am hopeful that eventually they'll be a, a very useful marketplace tool. Um, another uh, way to approach fisheries issues, as I said, and particularly because of the international scope of the f- seafood trade, is to increase consumer demand for environmentally preferable seafood. This is a picture of environmental defenses, um, pocket seafood selector, seafood card. Seafood is incredibly complicated, and it's not reasonable to expect most people to be able to remember all the choices that are, are good and, and bad to make. And so, wallet cards are a tremendous tool. I know um, Princeton distributes the Monterey Bay Aquariums card, which is fantastic, and um, I urge everyone to carry one of these cards in their pockets. Now, that said, these cards are important, obviously in part because they allow consumers to vote with their pocketbooks, but they're also really important because they cause consumers to start asking questions of the businesses where they buy their fish. And of course, um, those sorts of questions are what motivate businesses to offer better choices. After all, we as consumers, for the most part, especially when it comes to fish, can only choose among those products that are offered to us in the marketplace. So, um, with that in mind, a number of organizations, including my own, um, now have partnerships with um, selected major seafood purchasers who are beginning to make changes to to try and feature more environmentally preferable seafood. We have a a partnership I thought I'd highlight with Wegmans Supermarkets because it's here in in Princeton. But there are other companies that are doing similar things. Um, Ahold, which is a, a um, a conglomerate that owns Stop and Shop and Giant, is working with the New England Aquarium. Walmart has an ongoing effort, believe it or not. Um, And a number of food service companies, including Bon Appetit, a very progressive food service company in California. Compass Group, the U.S. arm of the world's largest food service company. And actually, it's not here, but McDonald's has also made some um, efforts to source more environmentally fish for its filet of fish sandwich. And um, I think these efforts are all very important. Um, Obviously, ultimately, our goal is to increase the impact to get uh, some of these pioneering Um, Companies to create policies that work in the marketplace, that encourage better fishing and fish farming, and then to get other companies to adopt them too. Well, with that, I thought I would conclude my talk um, just by um, spending a moment noting that um, the issues around seafood have both some important similarities and some important differences with the issues around terrestrial um, food issues or terrestrial agriculture. And just to note a couple of them, um, in in seafood production, particularly fish farming, we see some of the same trends towards feedlot style production that we've seen um, with animal production and and, uh, with pigs and and cows and so on. Um, For the most part, um, aquaculture isn't as far along towards feedlots as as terrestrial production, but I, I cringe every time I go to a scientific meeting and someone talks about the fact that the poultry industry should be the model for the future of seafood production. And believe me, it happens all the time. Um, another similarity is that it is really critical to educate consumers about the foods they buy. Um, and uh, I think there's a lot of commonality between the efforts that are being made with people working on seafood issues and terrestrial food issues, um, um, working on sourcing, working on helping make consumers make good choices. Um, That said, there are also some very important differences. As I sort of harped on, um, one of the important differences is the incredibly international nature of our seafood supply, much more so than our terrestrial food supply. And that makes ideas, for example, about buying local a lot more difficult to execute. Moreover, since so much of our seafood still comes from the oceans, um, it's very difficult to ask people, say, in Chicago, to um, necessarily buy local. In addition, as I just said, the majority of our seafood still does come from wild animals. It comes from wild trout fish, and that means that there are a lot of different sorts of issues about how we manage wild populations of animals that are living in a natural ecosystem that um, are are considerably different than the the challenges we face with agricultural policy. So with that, um, I think I'll stop, and I would love to take some questions after the other presentations.
0: Thank you very much, Becky. And I might add that uh, copies of the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch card are available or were available outside by the registration desk. And in addition to being useful, these things are are an awful lot of fun. On more than one occasion, I've had some flustered chef come out and try to find out who was was the uh, person who wanted to know whether the haddock was troll-captured or pole-caught. So I, I, I recommend them for both... Uh, environmental, ethical, and entertainment purposes. Our next speaker is Paul Shapiro. Paul Shapiro is the director of the factory farming campaign at the Humane Society of the United States and as many of you know the Humane Society is the nation's largest animal welfare organization with nearly 10 million supporters. Paul has spearheaded numerous campaigns improve the plight of farm animals. and In particular, he has led campaigns to persuade retailers to stop selling battery cage eggs. In addition, Mr. Shapiro has worked as a farm animal cruelty investigator documenting conditions on egg and broiler factory farms at livestock auctions and at slaughter plants. It's a pleasure to welcome him here. He will be talking about farm animal welfare concerns and progress in the United
2: States. Thank you very much, David. And I understand that I'm, you're giving me all of Guidon's time, too, so I have 40 minutes now. Right, okay, good. Um, Well, thanks so much for coming out. Thanks to the organizers for bringing us all here together. It's been an excellent conference so far, and for the next 20 minutes, it's gonna get a lot better. Um, No, I'm just kidding. As you heard, my name is Paul Shapiro and I work for the Humane Society of the United States. And many of you, when you think about the Humane Society, you may think about the work that we do for dogs and cats. And you may think about the programs that we run, free spaying, neutering programs, free veterinary uh, care for animals in impoverished communities, maybe the emergency disaster work that we did in Hurricane Katrina. But we're also concerned not only about dogs and cats, we're also concerned about farm animals. And, uh, thank you, (laughs) Uh, farm animals, like dogs and cats, are individuals who care about their lives, they can suffer, and they have individual personalities. And we figure if German shepherds can get along with farm animals, then maybe we should be able to as well. So, um, the problem of course is that even though farm animals are capable of suffering, on factory farms, they suffer immensely. Now, the title of this talk is Concerns and Progress. And so I want to go over a few of the most serious concerns that animal welfare advocates have about the factory farming of animals, especially uh, cattle, pigs, and chickens. So you've got a situation where the majority of breeding pigs in the United States, the female breeding pigs, are confined in two-foot-wide cages known as gestation crates that prevent them even from turning around, let alone engaging in other important natural behaviors. And this is not a temporary holding uh, cage for these pigs. This is where they spend their entire lives. Similarly, Calves who are raised for veal, the majority of them in our country, spend their entire lives chained by their necks inside of similarly restrictive crates in which they can barely move for months on end. It is truly unimaginable to try to imagine what these animals' lives must be like. At the same time, we kill, as we heard yesterday from Professor Singer, about 9 billion, that's billion with a B, We kill about 9 billion chickens in the United States for human consumption each year. It's about more than a million an hour. And nearly all of them are subjected to a method of slaughter known as electric stunning. Now, keep in mind that electric stunning merely stuns these animals into paralysis, not unconsciousness. So the animals are shackled by their feet upside down. They are moved through a uh, pool of water that is electrified, paralyzed, and then run over an electric blade which cuts their throats. And a small percentage of them end up missing that blade, and the next step in the process is for them to drown in a tank of scalding water that's designed to loosen their feathers. But even a smaller percentage amounts to millions of animals per year. You can imagine the outcry there would be if millions of dogs and cats each year were being killed by drowning them in tanks of scalding water. And then perhaps the most intensive form of confinement on factory farms is the cruelty to which egg laying hens are subjected. Uh, About 95% of the egg laying hens in our country are confined in what are known as battery cages. These are cages that give each bird less space than a sheet of letter sized paper on which to live for her entire life. So for 18 months, these birds are confined in cages that are so restrictive they're unable even to spread their wings, let alone engage in numerous other important behaviors such as nesting, dust bathing, perching and so on. Now, some of you may be thinking, how can all of this cruelty be permissible? Don't we have laws against animal cruelty? Well, at the federal level, we have very little. Uh, the Animal Welfare Act exempts all all animals raised for food. The Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, as poorly enforced as it is, exempts about 95 percent of animals who are slaughtered in our country. And at the farm level, at the at the on the farm, as opposed to at slaughter, um, there's no federal regulation whatsoever. There are no federal standards for how animals can be raised. And at the state level, while it's true that each state does have a cruelty code, the majority of states in our country exempt what they call common farming practices, no matter how abusive they may be. So if a practice is common, yet abusive, in most states in our country, it's exempt from the cruelty statutes. So these animals, for the most part, animals who are raised for food, are living in a virtual legal vacuum with almost no protection from cruelty. Now, thinking about this and realizing how abused these animals are, you may be feeling the way that I do. And I think it's reasonable to feel that way. Nobody likes to see animals abused. Um, Nobody likes to lose either, apparently. But, um, But the good news is that we are making progress. I think for the first time in many years, we're starting to see serious progress. So this is Chipotle's website. Anybody here eat at Chipotle? Too few hands are going up. Do they not have it in New Jersey? It's, a, it's actually really good. But, uh, and it's used to be owned by McDonald's. Um, but anyway, this is their website, quite frankly, Factory Farm Suck and Chipotle uses Nyman Ranch pork and some of their chicken is antibiotic free. And it's not, I, it's not uh, idyllic conditions, but the animals overall have better lives than the animals who are served in many other fast food chains. Also on the crate issue, you've got the entire European Union now has banned both veal crates and gestation crates. The state of Florida by ballot initiative in a landslide vote in 2002 banned the confinement of uh, breeding pigs in gestation crates. Uh, Temple Grandin, who's on the McDonald's Animal Welfare Advisory Committee and who's renowned for being an expert in livestock handling, has said, quote, that gestation crates for pigs are a real problem. Basically, you're asking a sow to live in an airline seat I think it's something that needs to be phased out. At the same time, the most recent advance that we've seen against uh, the confinement of veal calves and breeding pigs in gestation crates is the topic that many of you have been hearing about uh, earlier today and yesterday, and that is Arizona. Um, Just last week, voters in Arizona, by a huge landslide, by a 24-point margin, passed a ballot measure, Prop 204 which prohibits the confinement of calves and breeding pigs in crates that are too narrow for them to turn around and extend their limbs. Seems kind of crazy that we even have to be having that debate in our society today. But unfortunately, since most uh, veal calves and breeding pigs are confined in that manner, we are waging that battle. And despite the fact that the agribusiness interest put in well over $2 million to fight us in this campaign in Arizona, which is far more money than what we uh, in the animal welfare community put into it, uh, the voters spoke loud and clear. And they sent a message to the factory farming community, both in Arizona and across the nation, that its practices are out of step with the moral sensibilities of our society, that farm animals deserve better, and that the time for change is now. So that is an extremely important victory that I think all of us ought to be celebrating and hopefully we'll see more victories to come. Now, moving on to progress on poultry slaughter. We've seen less progress, but still some progress. MBA Poultry, which is a Nebraska poultry slaughter, has implemented one of the first controlled atmosphere killing slaughter plants in the United States. Controlled atmosphere killing is a slaughter method that is more widely used in Europe than it is here but it involves rendering the birds unconscious or dead before they are even ever shackled. There are obvious animal welfare benefits to this method. Uh, There are also worker safety benefits as well. So um, MBA Poultry in a press release in, in Nebraska, they put out a press release last year saying that there have been numerous studies conducted that lead us to believe the typical electric stunning systems used in the U.S. can cause severe welfare problems for millions and possibly billions of birds each year. This is coming from a poultry slaughter company, not from an animal welfare charity. So there is increasing recognition that the conventional method of killing birds causes extreme and unnecessary suffering that can be avoided by switching over to systems that are better for the welfare of the birds. They may not be perfect, they may not be ideal, and the question of whether animals ought to be slaughtered for food anyway is a matter that's still up for debate. But as long as chickens are being killed for food, really we owe it to them at a bare minimum to avoid some of the most cruel and inhumane slaughter practices, and that can be done through controlled atmosphere killing. Dr. Bruce Webster at the University of Georgia, a poultry scientist, stated that the current dumping, shackling, electric stunning process is a dinosaur. Hopefully, the rest of the industry and some of the fast food companies will start demanding that this dinosaur go extinct. And then finally, of course, Temple Granite again, the U.S. poultry industry should move toward controlled atmosphere stunning. Another advance in the poultry slaughter issue is a lawsuit that the Humane Society of the United States has brought against the Department of Agriculture for failing to cover poultry under the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act. Here's an article in the San Francisco Chronicle, Poultry Slaughter Suit Okayed. That means that essentially the issues of standing have been resolved in this lawsuit and that the case is now moving on to the merits. Anybody interested in hearing more about that can come up and we'll talk more afterwards about it. Now. The biggest area of progress that I think that I've seen uh, as far as farm animal welfare is concerned is on the battery cage issue. And that is quite frankly because it is the most intensive form of confinement. Many animal welfare groups are putting serious attention on getting birds out of battery cages. Now it really has been like a tidal wave of progress in the last few years. The choice for many companies is not whether or not to sell eggs, which is a matter that's still up for debate, but the choice for many companies is whether or not to sell eggs that come from birds who are confined in battery cages like this or that come from cage-free egg farms like this farm here. Um, You can see that cage-free egg farms may not be ideal, but they are significantly better than battery cage farms. The birds are able to walk around, to spread their wings, lay their eggs in nests and so on. And so what we've seen is a number of companies switching over to cage-free eggs. Whole Foods in 2005 adopted a policy to only sell cage-free eggs. A decade ago, you saw many grocery chains bragging that they offered cage-free eggs. Now you see grocery chains bragging that they don't offer battery cage eggs. Wild Oats Natural Marketplace, their main competitor, announced in 2005 that it adopted an exclusively battery cage-egg-free policy for all of its stores. Trader Joe's in 2005 announced that it was adopting a policy where all Trader Joe's brand eggs would be converted to cage-free. Even Ben & Jerry's just a few months ago declared that it was converting all of the nearly 100 million eggs that it uses in its ice cream every year to cage-free. Now many people may think, wow, well, one, Ben & Jerry's uses eggs, that's news to many people, but two... but two, this is a company that brags about its opposition to factory farming, and it's a very socially responsible company. How can they be using tens and tens of millions of battery eggs each year? Well, they're phasing it out, and that's a huge step in the right direction that I think deserves to be applauded. You can see on the homepage, there, excellent news. There's no shortage of puns that you can use in the, uh, in, you know, it's uh, stupendous. It's, um, anyway. Anyway. Um, So not only are we seeing major retailers like Whole Foods, Wild Oats, Ben & Jerry's all getting rid of battery cage eggs, but even major corporations like AOL and Google are refusing to serve their their employees battery cage eggs. The San Jose Mercury News front page screamed that Google uses clout to free hens when Google announced that it was adopting an exclusively cage-free egg policy. The Washington Post read, AOL bans eggs from caged hens. The trend is becoming increasingly clear that no socially responsible company wants to have anything to do with battery cage eggs. And in the same way that many people can't hear the word veal without conjuring up images of animal cruelty, and rightly so, many people are now recognizing that battery cage eggs are becoming the new veal. Again, no socially responsible company wants to have its image tarnished by Uh, using or selling or serving these eggs that come from birds who are so horribly abused. Uh, Bon Appetit, as you mentioned, uh, about sustainable seafood policies, also adopted an exclusively cage-free shell egg policy. We're seeing other companies, too, doing the same, and it really is just like a tidal wave. Nearly 100 universities are now using cage-free eggs, whereas a few years ago it was zero. Princeton, I'm proud to say, while I can't count myself as one of the alumni, uh, is on the list of schools that are now using cage-free eggs. I think Stu can correct me if I'm wrong, I think they're using um, shell eggs, not liquid eggs. So the the shell eggs that are in Princeton are cage-free, whereas the liquid eggs are from battery hens. So there's a lot of progress on the university front as well, and just in the way that we've seen many other social Uh, social movements really uh, gaining traction on campuses in our country. We're seeing farm animal welfare do just the same. We're also seeing city governments getting into the act. Here's a recent Washington Post article from a few weeks ago. The city of uh, Tacoma Park, Maryland, their city council passed a unanimous resolution condemning the confinement of laying hens in battery cages and urging residents of the city not to buy battery cage eggs. I think this is a truly historic moment, even though it's a non-binding resolution, still for a city government to come down and uh, weigh in on an issue is a pretty big deal in my opinion. The Wall Street Journal last year had a front page personal journal story. Uh, said, the yoke of oppression, another great pun. Uh, Eggs are latest front in humane food wars. And that's what's happening. Eggs are becoming the latest front in the humane food wars for sure. Now, there's also progress not only in the treatment of animals and in corporate social responsibility, but also in advertising. We saw... Um, the egg industry was concerned that many people were starting to realize just how abusively most laying hens are treated, and so they slapped a label on their cartons that read Animal Care Certified. Well, as Marion can tell us all, advertising can often be misleading, and uh, so we took them to the Better Business Bureau, and we said, this is clearly false advertising. These birds are confined in cages that are so restrictive they can't even spread their wings for their entire lives. How can this be animal care certified? The Better Business Bureau agreed with us and ruled that indeed it was misleading. The egg industry had some egg on its face. And so they, um, they appealed the ruling to what's essentially the Supreme Court of the Better Business Bureau. It's called the National Advertising Review Board. And the National Advertising Review Board of the BBB the next year upheld the ruling and said, yes, we agree with the earlier ruling that this is misleading and that it ought to change. The egg industry still did not want to change. And so it took a lawsuit filing and then finally the Federal Trade Commission stepping in. And the egg industry announced voluntarily, of course, um, last year that it was Pulling the animal care certified logo from egg cartons nationwide and replacing it with a less misleading logo that simply reads United Egg Producers certified. Um, Of course, the United Egg Producers has created their own uh, voluntary program that permits battery cage confinement and other abuses and now these eggs are United Egg Producers certified. Still, that didn't get them out of the animal care certified hot bath, so to speak, and uh, 16 state attorney generals, along with the D.C. Attorney General, just uh, last month settled a case with with the United Egg Producers for a $100,000 fine for engaging in false, what they alleged was false advertising related to the animal care certified scam. So there has been progress, I think, uh, on the welfare labeling issue. There still are misleading labels out there for sure but I think that the whole animal care certified case really demonstrates that you can't just slap a label on no matter how horrible the conditions are and claim that it's good welfare, that there are gonna be uh, serious challenges to that. And I think that's good. You know, there's definitely progress being made. We're not as far as we hope to go, but progress is being made. Now, all of these uh, corporate policies that are being changed, the AOLs, the Googles, the Whole Foods and otherwise are not just policies in and of themselves that don't affect how animals are actually being raised. Here's an article from last April on the Portland Press Herald says Radlow Foods spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to rip out wire cages that once housed more than 80,000 birds. It's the first large-scale conversion of a conventional hen house in Maine and perhaps the country. In order to meet the demand for improved farm animal welfare, Battery cage egg producers are literally ripping out the cages from their foundation to make way for cage-free hens. In a shed that used to hold 80,000 birds, now 20,000 birds are held. Is that ideal? Of course not. Is it significantly better? Absolutely. And so these companies like Bon Appetit and Whole Foods and AOL and Google really are having a dramatic impact on the way that animals are being raised in a way that little else actually could. I think probably more than, um, than some of the legislative efforts, although those are, are extremely important as well. So we're seeing a massive change in the way that animals, uh, relative to a few years ago, a massive change in the way animals are being raised. And I think uh, this spells good news on the horizon. However, we can't ignore the fact that the overwhelming majority of egg-laying hens, of veal calves, of breeding pigs are still confined in uh, cages and crates that are so abusive that they're prohibited in many other countries and that the overwhelming majority of the American public finds simply unacceptable. Poll after poll shows that people don't think it's appropriate to confine animals in spaces for long periods of time in which they can't even move. and so while there may be some light at the end of the tunnel here, I, don't, I think it's important not to overstate what's happening. I think it's also important that we're seeing a proliferation of vegetarian foods in the marketplace so that people can choose vegetarian options as opposed to uh, animal options. And I know that Marion was talking about the need to eat more fruits and vegetables. Michael Jacobson from Center for the Science and Public Interest is talking about the need to switch to a more plant-based diet for both animal welfare and environmental reasons. And uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, But while there is still a major problem, I really do think that we're living in exciting times. Uh, Right now, I firmly believe that we are living in a truly historic moment in that the the intensification of animal agriculture has only gotten worse and worse and worse over the last several decades. And for the first time in our country, we're seeing a slow start to the de-intensification which is good for a number of reasons. And I have no doubt that when historians look back in the at time after battery cages and gestation crates and veal crates have been banned, that they're gonna be looking back on these first few years of the 21st century and recognize that they were the formative moments in a movement, in a nationwide movement, to really address a fundamental wrong that has been uh, increasing in severity over the course of all of our lifetimes here in this room. And I'm proud to be a part of that change and I hope that the, that everyone else in this room is proud to be a part of it as well. I think by the fact that you're here, you are definitely part of it. And I would encourage you uh, to talk with uh, people like myself and other speakers as to how you can get more involved because there really is no shortage of ways that we can act to help these animals. Animals on factory farms can't defend themselves. They're completely out of mercy and they're counting on us to defend them. And I know that we won't let them down. So thanks so much for coming out and uh, we'll talk more later.
0: Our uh, third speaker in this session is Gidon Echel. Gidon is a professor of physical oceanography and climate in the Department of Geophysical Sciences at the University of Chicago. One of his main research interests is to compare the energy consumption of animal and plant-based diets and more broadly to explore the uh, range of ecological footprints that are generated by different dietary choices it's a pleasure to have him here
3: thank you you. it's uh likewise a pleasure uh for me and pam to be here um and uh i think we come to it from uh two the two distinct uh points of view one is that um we're, as far as I can tell, the only physical scientists in the, in the list, uh, distinguished list of uh, speakers. So we bring um, an angle that is uh, somewhat uh, different, I, I think. Um, the other thing is that, um, uh, in, in the name of uh, full disclosure, I will say that um, after I was in the Israeli military for many years, I actually ran a beef cattle farm for a number of years. Um, And uh, that I think sets me apart from most uh, uh, academics. And Pam likewise grew up in a small Midwestern uh, town where the largest uh, structure was the grain elevator. So um, I think we do uh, bring uh, uh, a different perspective which I hope to uh, outline in the next 20 minutes or so. Okay, so this is almost an axiomatic uh, statement that everybody around here at least believes The physical environment, the one that we need really in order to uh, to produce food, um, is heavily taxed, and a large, sorry, um, and a large portion of that is uh, exerted by animal, which has uh, energetic and other consequences. Uh, For example, here's the biggest, um, the the main. Uh, grain right here you see a pie chart and here is your corn at about 30 a little over 30 percent of everything that we grow Um, and here are the uses of that uh, of that product and you see that towering over everything else to the tune of 61 percent of the total is feed okay so we devote a lot of resources to, to, uh, to feed uh, the, the animals that we saw uh, in various uh, talks, uh, treated in various inhumane ways. Uh, so we're, we're going to outline various uh, ideas very briefly about how this system is taxed and what are some of the consequences of that. Okay. So the first one that I want to talk about here is uh, land use and here are examples of uh, subdivisions, as they call them in America, sort of encroaching on, uh, on otherwise fertile, uh, productive land. So here um, we plot the, the cropland. Okay? In the U.S., this is cropland, rangeland, to, uh, total rural and pasture as a function of time, which is, which is the horizontal axis. And you see that all of them, any category that you care to look at, uh, uh, exhibits a declining um, uh, trend. Okay? And that's exactly because of this. Okay? Not only, but, but to some extent. Okay? And uh, cropland, which is where you know, the portion of the land mostly allocated to growing corn, uh, is that much uh, 17.7 uh, was uh, at 82, and now it's... Um, Whatever is that, uh, I mean, it's, you know, upward of 10%. Okay, now over in the upper panel, we see that we uh, proliferate and fill the earth. Um, And uh, so this is the population, again, as a function of uh, time. This is in the U.S. Okay, male, female, and then here the total. Um, So you would think, naively, that you, we have here the two ingredients necessary for a Malthusian crisis. We have uh, declining resource and increased demand. Okay? Uh, now, that in and of itself will, will lead you to say, well, there's clearly um, a crisis in land, uh, uh, in land use in the making. Um, we don't actually claim that and we make a very clear distinction between ourselves and this man over here. Does anybody recognize him? Yeah, Paul Ehrlich, all right. Um, I tell you, I was uh, a faculty uh, candidate at Stanford and my candidacy ended after I spoke with Paul Ehrlich because I told him that I really care deeply about the predictions I make. And in particular, I like the correlation between them and what actually unfolds to be positive. so, we're not making such claims, but there's clearly uh, an issue here. Okay? Um, the, here, is a, here is a sort of a, pictor- uh, a spatial uh, statement of the problem. Per- this is percent of land area used for crops, and you see that the co- uh, in the areas where the confluence of all geophysical parameters that matter for, uh, for uh, grain production, uh, the confluence of all of those uh, actually results in most of the land being used uh, this up, upper color, which is clearly characteristic of um, our state of Illinois, um, is upward of 40%. And here, over here, you see county by county, the, the acres of corn harvested in 02, uh for grain as percent of the total harvest. And you see over here, uh, Fifty or more percent. So clearly, that statement is borne out by the data. The finest land in this country is sacrificed for uh, for feed production. So that's uh, point number one. Uh, the the choice, the dietary choices that we make, have geophysical consequences. You can see. That, for example, if you are a camera uh, mounted on a satellite looking down on the US from, uh, from space, you will clearly see that in terms of the radiative properties of uh, the continental US. We have actually, by our dietary choices, altered the radiative properties of the surface area of the US in a discernible, measurable way. Another thing that we altered in a dramatic way is uh, biogeochemical cycles, especially of the macronutrients. What we sh- What is shown here, over here is the annual rate of uh, nitrogen fixation in uh, in uh, 10 to the ninth kilograms per year. Now, for those of you who don't know what nitrogen fixation is, I mean, nitrogen is not broken, no need to worry. Um, it's just that in, in the atmosphere, you have nitrogen as molecular nitrogen, one atom, another atom, and they share, um, some electrons. This, uh, this uh, partnership is a very very strong one and therefore the N2 molecule is largely biologically inert and not available for biological uh, functions. We need to convert or one needs to convert that uh, nitrogen into biologically uh, active forms and that's what nitrogen fixation essentially is. The point of this is these land and oceans this is the natural rate of nitrogen fixation globally. This is the rate at which agriculture and industry fix nitrogen. We have one atmosphere to deal with. That's it. We're not going to have another one. And we have here our rate of uh, nitrogen fixing towering over, over that which occurs naturally. Uh, here is a, a, a different view of that. Here are various uh, ways we uh, either directly or indirectly uh, enhance nitrogen fixation. This, between the two dashed lines, is the rate, the estimated rate of uh, nitrogen fixation over land and ocean combined. And you see that we, the totality of our uses exceeded the low uh, estimate in 1971 and in 88 or so we've exceeded the upper... Uh, estimate, So now we know for a fact, and that's consistent. Oh, sorry, that's consistent with this. That our uses tower over uh, naturally occurring nitrogen fixation. That again gives you a pause. At least it should give you a pause. You know, we we are engaging in a massively large scale um, planetary engineering, really. But we are not engineers, really, or not particularly good ones. Um, here is an example of okay. So you do all this nitrogen fixation. How about at least use it? Uh, use it in in a prudent fashion. This shows that this is not the case. Um, what is shown here? This um, uh, this. Uh, whole panel deals with a number of basins in the Mississippi catchment, okay? So each dot corresponds to a, a sub-basin, okay? And what's shown here is the percent of that basin that is occupied by row crops, mostly the, the soil and uh, the corn and soy rotation or corn on corn uh, lack of rotation sometimes, okay? And here is the mean nitrate uh, concentration uh, in uh, water that's, uh, that's collected from those uh, catchments. And you see a very nice uh, correlation with some scatter, obviously, but the point of it is the more uh, intense your agricultural uh, occupation of the land is, the more nitrogen leaching there is. Nitrogen leaching is is that which you would like to bring to zero because it is something that uh, uh, some form of nitrogen, 100% of which goes to create adverse effect and 0% of it goes to produce food, producing food, okay? Um, here is um, a curve uh, showing um, the, the, well, the, here is the yield um, right he, right here um, and that's shown uh, r- right uh, in this um, vertical axis and this is the application rate of, um, of nitrogen uh, fertilizer. This is that, that rate which will give you the maximum yield. The current in the u s is about one hundred and twenty five but so it seems like we 're doing pretty good. We're, we are very close to the maximum yield with minimizing the adverse effect. This dashed curve shows you leachable nitrogen. However, take note of this okay this number is inching upward and here you see it here's the devel- developing countries for example the, the uh, legend is shown here 5960 8990 and, and uh, projected use for uh, 2020 and you see in all of the regions including the world as a whole there's an upward, um, upward trend okay um, here is, uh, so here is our uh, Mississippi ba- uh, Basin where most of our corn and, and uh, soy to feed animals uh, come from. And what is shown here, this is the inputs and the outputs in terms of, uh, in terms of nitrogen. And this is the residual. And notice that they have different scales. This is, this is the scale for the residual. This is the scale for inputs and outputs. And now, over here, the mouth of the Mississippi, right where New Orleans used to be, um, there is a huge flux of nitrogen dissolved in the, uh, in the discharge of the Mississippi uh, into the Gulf of Mexico and here is the residual uh, time series plotted against time uh, the residual from here, so in other words how much excess nitrogen is inputted into the into the basin and here is the flux of nitrogen into the gulf and the point is that after some honeymoon period, where the land was relatively unsaturated with respect to nitrogen and could absorb the assault that we uh, we uh, bombarded it with, after that honeymoon pe- honeymoon period was over, and basically you needed a balance where whatever re- uh, residual there is has to go out by means of uh, of uh, surface runoff, then. The, the residual and the flux into the Gulf are exactly uh, mirror images of each other. So, the, the, bar, the, the upshot of it is we are doing too much fertilizing, we're doing it inefficiently, and we thereby uh, increase the nutrient load in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, that it, that is... Uh, I'll, I'll actually get to the consequences of that in a minute. But here is uh, uh, a plot of the, rate, the proportion of excess uh, nitrogen, nitrogen that's exported out, uh, and phosphorus. So these two are for nitrogen, these two are for phosphorus. Uh, and this is the proportion that, uh, is, um, uh, that fertilizer application is responsible for. And this is directly uh, uh, through animal uh, um, Agriculture okay and you see right i mean in many of the prime uh, parts of the Mississippi catchment or really the uh, the u s east of the Rockies, you see that you have that category of the red which is fifty to one hundred percent, so we are fertilizing uh, in a very inefficient way uh, and f- and the, well there's no efficient way of um, uh, Conducting animal uh, agriculture, but this simply tells you what the what the effluent rate is, and it is staggering. Okay, the, uh, some uh, of that. Some of that discharge of excess nutrients into the world ocean results in what we call dead zones which are all over uh, the coastal waters uh, in the world. This is is a picture of the Gulf of Mexico. Here's an oil rig right there. And this is a picture of the front separating Mississippi discharge here. So uh north is this way. Mississippi discharge here and clear blue uh Gulf of Mexico waters. Here the the front is extremely sharp uh because it um, it uh, migrates back and forth uh semi-diurnally with the tide. The point is that you have a situation where you can readily see from space either in the visible band or in a false color uh band that is um, specific uh, uh, explicitly uh, designed to capture biological particles. And this is what we see here, a huge proliferation of algae, which basically is the result of um, of that uh, discharge of nutrients, which is largely unnecessary. Okay. Uh, this is... Uh, this is the size of the dead zone in one particular year. This is a time series of the size of the dead zone. This uh, red horizontal bar is the uh, fine state of Rhode Island that sent Lincoln Chafee home just the other day. Um, so, um, so. This is, uh, this is the mechanism by which uh, dead zones uh, occur. Basically, the ocean is a stratified uh, fluid. In other words, you have light fluid up top, dense fluid below. The reason this is light is primarily twofold. It's, it's uh, uh, warmer because it absorbs solar radiation and it is less salty. Now. You bring in, here's the mouth of the Mississippi, and you bring in water that's not only extremely fresh, but also very high in nutrients, okay? Then you have, you know, you have this bounty uh, of uh, nutrients, you have nice sunshine coming down, you have biological productivity. That... Uh, when it sinks down, all those particles of algae that sink down, they decompose, they consume all the oxygen, and all the bottom dwellers here are basically deprived of oxygen, and they um, either go south or go really south. Um, one, one issue that, uh, another issue that matters a great deal, that actually is a picture of the Ogallala uh, aquifer that was uh, mentioned uh, uh, earlier. This is the, situa- the mean situation, the thickness essentially in, in feet. This is shown right here uh, from the bottom to the top of the aquifer, the saturated region and this is what it was like in 96-7. In and this is the difference right here uh, from 80 to 97 in many, uh, I mean I know it's hard to read the legend, in many places the, the, the difference is actually 10 or more percent drop in the in the availability of uh, readily harvested uh, fresh water. This uh, is not a sustainable way and uh, to run your uh, your water fresh water budget. And a lot of it goes to produce uh, to producing corn and soy. That uh, at least some of a uh, large portion of goes to feeding animals. Um, Part of the issue is changing the surface uh, uh, properties. I alluded earlier to the radiative properties. But one thing, uh, without getting too much uh, into, the, into the numbers here, because time is running short, the point here is shown schematically right here. When you, um, when you use the land very intensely, you alter its hydrological properties and this is, this is something called a hydrograph, which is basically if you were to take a, a given uh, river and measure how much water goes through it uh, from, uh, from uh, some time zero that is, uh, that is the rain event, you, uh, in the old days or in an old, unaltered uh, catchment these days, you see something like that, nice, slow and subdued rise and then slow decline. Conversely, when something, uh, uh, when most of the area, surface area in the catchment, is devoted to row crops, you get a huge peak, much higher than previously, uh, enhancing erosion, and then a rapid decline. That means that this water, even though the area, the integral here is the same, the the area under the two curves is the same. This water has much less chance to work its way, percolate down, and do its thing, and replenish the, the, the aquifer underneath. Uh, this water is much more likely, because it is so spiky, to simply uh, be washed off into the ocean and be lost. Okay? Um, this is uh, a, a demonstration. This is the total, the, the, the blue. Okay. Uh, and this is as a function of time, the, the consumptive use of water, okay? And this is the total and this is for irrigation and the point of this uh, uh, plot is to show you how close these are, okay? In other words, irrigation amounts to, I mean it maybe is an, uh, an obvious thing, but it's worth pointing out numerically that irrigation, again primarily to producing corn that absolutely nobody needs, uh, is a huge consumer of, uh, of available water. Okay, now our claim to fame, right? Uh, and that is greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, uh, when you produce food, uh, you uh, you produce greenhouse. You uh, are responsible for the emission of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. I assume that everybody knows what greenhouse gases are. If not, you should take one of my classes. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, the point is that. A large chunk of the greenhouse gases associated with food production is indeed uh, energy production, fossil fuel combustion. That's 2.5, uh, essentially, uh, uh, tons of CO2 equivalent per person per year in the US. Okay? Now, there are two, uh, or, or three actually, uh, trailing ones that are uh, smaller by a good chunk but, but nonetheless very important. Enteric, fer- enteric fermentation is an easy one. That's uh, what happens when organic matter decomposes anaerobically inside rumens of ruminants, primarily cows, um, and they produce methane. This, this fermentation produces methane which actually contrary to popular belief comes out through the front end. Uh, it's, um, it's burping. And that's, uh, that is responsible for 0.4 ton per person per year of CO2 equivalent. That's, that's not a trivial thing. Agricultural land management, obviously, uh, when you plow, till, whatever the land, you alter in a dramatic way its composition and, uh, and its um, uh, physical uh, attributes and that changes the rate at which it exchanges gases with the atmosphere, etc. And uh, the the total consequence of that is about a ton of CO2 equivalent per person per year. And then there's rice, uh, I mean, uh, waste management, that's manure mostly, and rice, uh, uh, especially the way it's practiced uh, in in, uh, Southeast Asia. Okay, now, it's really important to remember this. This is the, amount, the energetic efficiency of various foods. Uh, in red are animal-based foods, in green, plant-based foods. Okay? The point of this is that you get about one-tenth of what you put in in terms of fossil fuel energy uh, from animals. You get somewhere between 200 and even 500. We choose, chose to leave out oats because oats is 510. It would have blown the curve. Okay, so we, we don't want to do that, um, but uh, but you get the picture. Here, you get two to five times more energy, edible energy than you put in from Saudi Arabia. Here, you get a tenth. That's the big difference. Okay, now I don't want to get too technical. Uh, not technical. I mean, th- there's nothing here that any certified accountant cannot do. However, it's. Uh, <laughs> Um, it's um, oh, even an uncertified one, for all I know. But, uh, but uh, uh, I, I want to get to the punchline, so let's, uh, uh, let's skip that unless there will be uh, questions. Okay, What is shown here is, um, is uh, di- over here uh, in the uh, horizontal axis is the percent of caloric input from animal sources. So, for example, the mean American diet, conveniently acronymed MAD, um, has... Um, <laughs> Has um, uh, about thirty, about a third of the calories from animal sources. Okay, right there. Okay, um, the the various lines, the various curves, uh, and their slopes correspond to various semi-realistic hypothetical diets. For example, here's the mean American diet. So the slope of the line is determined by the composition of the diet. What is in it? How much, how much of your calories uh, come from egg, from dairy, from meat, red meat, poultry, etc. okay? So here is, for example, the most, the least uh, offensive diet, uh, except for vegan, of course. Um, which is uh, where you get all of um, that portion. Uh, let me just show you here that portion of uh, of your um, uh, assorted meat uh, uh, portion of the calories. This is just simply taken from the FAO uh, data and that's Mary Nessel uh, alluded earlier to the figure of 3774 kilocalories per person per day in the US. That's what the total here, right here. And this is the portion that's uh, uh, derived from animals and this in particular is the part from uh, meat. So, if all of that portion is from poultry and you uh, consume again, uh, that many, uh, let's say 30% of your calories from uh, animal sources, in that case it will be 30% of your calories from poultry, you are responsible uh, for the extra emission of about a ton, extra ton, above and beyond what your fellow vegan person is responsible for, even though you both eat the same amount of vastly uh, excessive amount of calories. Okay. Um, so so um, you see right here that if you are eating not only the f- fraction of your calories from animal sources the way most Americans do but also the composition of those 30% uh, um, is partitioned among the various sources to reflect the mean American diet, then you're responsible for the excess emission of a ton and a half of CO2 equivalent. Now, to, to, to put that in perspective for you, uh, each one of us uh, is responsible, us, I put myself among the Americans, um, is responsible for somewhere between 18 and 22 tons of CO2 equivalent per, per year, just by virtue of existing. Okay, so, um, so that number, a ton and a half, oh, I should say that of that 18 to 22, about four tons, roughly speaking, is the, the, uh, the, diet, uh, the dietary component, okay? So if you can change your planetary footprint, specifically in terms of global warming effect uh, by uh, releasing greenhouse gases, by one, uh, one and a half over four, Okay, over four because that's the total that's contributed, roughly speaking, by diet. Then you see that you're talking a huge and very significant, discernible, important uh, portion of your total planetary footprint is at your very fingertips. You just don't have to, to eat uh, as much uh, food from animal sources, that's it. And now, it's important to emphasize that we don't advocate anything. I really admire uh, Peter Singer for being an ethicist because I'm sheepish about telling people what's ethical and what's not. You know, I, I, uh, you know it takes guts to do that. Um, <laughs> but but, but, but what, uh, what we are saying, Pam and I, is that whatever you can do to inch yourself a little bit from wherever you are along this uh, along the uh, horizontal axis, whatever you can do to inch yourself a little bit toward the origin, more power to you. You are a better person for it. Um, it's interesting to see uh, that, you know, we all care a great deal about the car that we drive and we, uh, you know, we... Uh, we spare no expense to buy a Prius, right, and, uh, and uh, we will travel halfway across the globe simply to buy a Prius, and that's very virtuous and we, you know, deserve a pat on the back. Um, however, it is important to notice that, um, for example, if you are uh, a red meat aficionado and you eat 34 or 35 percent of your uh, calories from that source, um, the added emissions of greenhouse gases you're responsible for on top of what your fellow uh, veganese is responsible for, that is two and a half half tons and that is very much identical to the difference between driving an SUV to driving a Camry. Okay, So it's a big and important difference. So, uh, food production exerts a major pressure on the physical environment both in the US and globally affecting just about anything, but just to give some examples, the hydrological cycle, completely altered over the U.S., available land use, most biogeochemical cycles, we only showed two, but all of, most of them are altered, uh, the atmospheric uh, radiative properties, that's global warming for you, um, and by their inherent inefficient use of finite resources, animal-based foods, uh, foods, tax the global environment disproportionately. And therefore, it is meritorious that we will uh, try to minimize them in our diet. Thank you very much.
0: If the uh, panelists will uh, take a seat up here with the uh We will take questions for really no more than five minutes to try to keep this on schedule. So I would ask that both the questions, especially the questions, and to a lesser degree the answers be short. (laughs) Woman down there with her hands up. Can we get a microphone to her?
1: Hi. I wonder if all of you could address the issue of um, proponents of industrial agriculture will say that a growing population needs industrial agriculture in order to feed the population that we have. Um, From all of your perspectives, could you address that? Um, Sure, I'll I'll give it at least a quick attempt and give everybody a chance. It's not that simple. I mean, people tend to to, – talk to critics of current agricultural practices and say, you throw us back to the Stone Age or at least to turn-of-the-century farming practices, which don't have very high yields and so on. Um, And the fact is that the way we need to move forward is to look for better agricultural practices. we shouldn't reject technology, but we need to look hard at how those practices are adopted and how they're used and pick the best and throw out the worst. Um, So when people raise issues like that, they're, they're raising a false dichotomy.
3: I actually see the, uh, uh, I agree to some extent, but I also disagree a little bit in the sense that there is an issue here. And one thing, I mean, even though this conference was wonderful or is wonderful, um, one thing that was really missing is the class issue. You know, that, uh, I mean, many people um, can't afford, many of the, at least in the current system, many of the solutions that, that we advocate. Uh, obviously, we are all sympathetic, and all the speakers before were sympathetic to that, so that's fine. But there is an, a, a class issue here, and uh, I disagree with Marion Nessel when she says, uh, you can always eat healthy in any supermarket in this country. That is blatantly false. Um, uh, Pam and I run uh, field courses, we take kids all over, all over the country, and we have a really hard time. Even 30 miles south of D.C. was the last time we just couldn't find anything to buy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it is true that industrial agriculture has uh, something to offer that we can't currently uh, do away with. That is correct. Uh, and... Um, we need to, among the many, many things that we need to do, we need to, to make sure that uh, whatever advantages uh, are put in place are distributed uh, evenly and uh, justly. That's it.
2: Um, just. Just very briefly, I mean, most of the poor people in the world subsist on a much more plant-based diet than the affluent nations do. Many plant-based options are far cheaper. Maybe, you know, if you go to Chipotle, the vegetarian burrito is a dollar cheaper. Many Chinese restaurants, the plant-based options are cheaper. So it is definitely, to take your advice of eating fewer animal products can oftentimes be cheaper than buying a diet that is heavy in animal products.
0: Gentlemen in the front... Dr. Goldberg,
3: um,
2: recently I read a, uh, which I guess everybody here did, about the massive decline of uh, commercially viable fish, and I, I looked at the plot myself and saw this trend going down. I guess it could occur probably even earlier, but um,
3: could you comment on that?
1: Um, sure, um, those results are by a um, recent from a recent article in Science magazine, which actually has much more to it than just that one plot, and. Um, The projections show that if we keep current rates of fishing, we'll see um, basically about zero commercially viable fish populations by, I believe, 2048. And one can argue whether that projection is exactly correct or not. But it's just a mirror of the fishing down the food chain slide I showed you, that people are scooping out of the ocean almost as fast as we can um, all the big commercially valuable fish. And... um, You know, it's an incredibly distressing state of affairs, and it manages to happen in part because most of us never venture under the ocean, especially to areas that aren't spectacular coral reefs where we like to snorkel, and so things are allowed to happen that we would never allow on land.
0: One more question. Person in red over here. Uh, Let me repeat the question for those who did not uh, hear it. The gentleman inquired about any progress that is being made uh, with respect to uh,
2: improvements in beef uh, packing plants and slaughterhouses. Paul. Um, You know, people like uh, Temple Grandin claim there is being progress made at the initiative of some of the retailers who are doing audits. Other people question, um, question how much progress is being made. Um, The GAO issued a report stating that many animals were just simply being uh, killed in violation of the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act recently. And so there are very serious concerns. I think it's also important to recognize that we slaughter about 35 million cattle in this country every year, yet we slaughter more than 9 billion chickens every year. And so from from an animal welfare perspective, there is a much greater sense of urgency on improving Uh, the welfare of birds as opposed to cattle. Not that cattle aren't important, that their suffering doesn't matter. Of course, it it does, and many of them are subjected to truly horrific uh, abuse. Um, But the reason why so many animal welfare groups are focusing on the plight of birds is simply because of the the universe of suffering is so much greater in that realm.
0: And uh, we will take uh, one more question. The woman in the back with the red scarf.
2: I have a question for Dr. Eschel. Um, In the last graph that you showed with the energy use and the greenhouse gases associated with eating different diets, it strikes me that, um, well, if all cows are not created equal, um, that some cows are raised on grass and some are raised on corn and that those two cows will have very different greenhouse gas emissions and fuel associated with uh, with, with them. So I was wondering if you could uh, address that.
3: Uh, it's a great question, and it's based on a correct premise. Um, so, they, so there are two parts, uh, if you recall, to, to, the, to the greenhouse gas footprint. <clears throat> the first is uh, CO2 uh, combusted for energy use. And, uh, I mean, if a cow is just grazing throughout her life, let's say she, it's a she, uh, on, uh, on the range, then she consumes uh, none of that. But most of them are what they call finished in uh, feedlots, um the the composition of their burps is rather different uh, depending <laughs> on their diet and so they're uh, you know they're uh, uh, walking uh, greenhouse gas uh, producers and uh, that matters a great deal and it is and it is true that there's much more roughage uh, in grazing and therefore there's a much more methane production uh, Pam I talked about it, didn't do that calculation, so I wouldn't venture numbers here, but it is possible that it totally undoes the uh, advantage uh, presented by, uh, by uh,
0: CO2 savings, so
3: that the excess methane actually undoes what uh,
0: saving CO2 does. Thank you very much. Uh, unfortunately, to keep on schedule, I'm going to have to uh, bring an end to the questions, although I think there will be opportunities to... Uh, meet with the speakers. At this point, we will begin uh, adjourning for lunch. We will uh, report back at 2.15. Students in Environmental Studies 201 who've registered for the lunch, there will be two tables reserved for you. Uh, I want to take this moment to thank very much uh, Rebecca, Gidon, and Paul. Thank you, thank you very much. I I think we've had a wonderful morning session, I appreciate that. Just to let
3: you know, um, if you are booked in for lunch, uh, you did have to book and if you got in quick enough, lunch is down in Frist. If you don't know where that is, there'll be a group of people walking down that way. The book sales are open now and will close at two o'clock so if you want to buy a book by any of the authors and later get it signed, you have to do that before two o'clock. And please do start coming in by two o'clock, although we've put 2.15 as the starting time Uh, We did have to start a bit late this last session to get you all seated. So please be seated at 2.15 and we will start sharp at 2.15 as we have a full afternoon. Thank you.